the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Friday, June 23rd, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. Our phone number is 602-508-0960. This open lines Friday. Got Bill to my right. Got David Dahl producing in my front, in my front view. Uh, and, um, yeah, interesting. I've I've got two monologues today. One for this hour, and one's for the, one for the next, uh, based on uh, calls yesterday. We had uh, a very kind and decent and praising call from listener Paul and Mesa yesterday. After hearing a graduate of the Cooney Law School address her fellow students and the world, invoke and support a left wing revolution in America, Paul called and asked me if I would distill on what it is that we conservatives might find we have been met with the conditions for revolution here on our side. What are the indices? We spoke of this before, of course, but it's okay. Repetition is the essence of pedagogy. This does come up from time to time, and a few other callers have wanted me to discuss how we know when we Americans can rise up under the natural right of revolution, given usurpations of rights, irrigations of power, and corruption. A large part of this comes from a doubting of the ability to let free elections solve our political disagreements. Another way to ask this, how in a Republican form of government do we handle a disappointment or loss we firmly believe the result of unfairness, irregularity, or fraud? How do we deal with an ever-growing Leviathan state? How do we reassert our rights and return to the spirit of 1776 and 1787? These questions, of course, are not new. They are anew with us from time to time, however, they are afresh. They go back, though, to our very founding and carry through to our classic teachings. In fact, Abraham Lincoln was obsessed with this from his earliest speech, his Lyceum Address. And when he was president, he asked, is there in all republics this inherent and fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence. It's an uncomfortable question because it asks for an extreme solution that is unprecedented for nearly 250 years. But political philosophy deals with extremes in order, at best, to soothe them into responsible politics and polities. I think we should always start this discussion with the Declaration of Independence. This is where we find, quote, Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, what ends? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, close quote. Of course, the next part is just as important, quote, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the form to which they are accustomed. 
But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pushing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Close quote. We've spoken a lot about prudence in the past. I think it equally important to reflect on the words used here, absolute despotism. Thomas Jefferson is, of course, also invoked around these topics in a letter he wrote from France in 1787 about the Chaise Rebellion. Many of you know the quote, quote, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure, close quote. Forgotten often is this very rebellion horrified George Washington, prompting him to try to create a government strong enough in Philadelphia at the convention to keep this sentiment from ever running riot again. Riot. Good word to use here. James Madison was on to this as well as he put it in Federalist 51, a line a lot of us don't much love, but it's there, quote, In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place oblige it to control itself. In his book, A New Birth of Freedom, Professor Harry Jaffa writes this about Jefferson's line. He writes, quote, Jefferson's reaction to Shays' rebellion contrasts remarkably with the reactions of Washington, Madison, Hamilton, and other leading founders. For them, that rebellion proved a catalyst for the convention that framed the Constitution of 1787, a document that had no more urgent purpose than to provide security for the property against popular passions. Property was being endangered in the states by the people seeking relief from debt, either through the legislature or by mob action. But despite his reaction to Shays' rebellion, no one was more committed than Jefferson to the security of property under the rule of law, in popular no less than in other kinds of government. Jefferson always believed that the people are the origin of all the just powers of government and that it is by the majority alone that the people can act. But in keeping with his view that an elective despotism was not the government we fought for, Jefferson believed with the other founders in the danger of majority tyranny. The rights of minorities, meaning the rights of individuals, were no less inviolable by the people than by kings. And he thought that popular governments were subject to corruption and that resistance to corruption might be manifested in resistance even to popular governments. The right of revolution, which underlay all the people's rights, might then be manifested either in violent resistance to corrupt or tyrannical governments or in the institution and maintenance of popular governments deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In the 1790s, Jefferson was frequently of two minds as to whether the government instituted as a result of the ratification of the Constitution deserved loyalty as an embodiment of the people's rights or whether it deserved resistance for having usurped powers never given it by the people. The transformation of the right of revolution into the right of free election really began with Thomas Jefferson's own party's victory in 1800. We are reminded that Lincoln's first great speech, the Lyceum speech of 1838, had as its theme 
the particular importance in a popular government of reverence for the laws. Lincoln stressed the necessity of obeying even bad laws while working for their repeal or reform because disobedience to bad laws engenders a habit of lawlessness that easily turns into mob rule. And when law cannot protect persons and property, men will turn away from the rule of law to despotism for their security. Indeed, Lincoln's understanding in this speech of the dangers of lawlessness for popular government or for the inexorable connection between anarchy and tyranny was substantially the same as the one that animated those who called for the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Now, that all said, I know there are a lot of questions raised, but let's start with a few facts from history, starting with that Thomas Jefferson didn't even apply his own 1780 standard to himself when he was president. As the great constitutional historian Leonard Levy writes, an entire book about Jefferson's violation of civil liberties called Jefferson and Civil Liberties, The Darker Side, Jefferson at one time or another supported loyalty oaths, countenanced internment camps for political suspects, drafted a bill of attainder, urged prosecutions for seditious libel, trampled on the Fourth Amendment, condoned military despotism, used the army to enforce laws in times of peace, censored reading, chose professors for their political opinions, and endorsed the doctrine that the means, however odious, were justified by the ends. I suppose it's easy to write somewhat irresponsibly from France, as he did in his Tree of Liberty letter, but a little different when you are back in your own country and the president. For example, we have something here called the Insurrection Act. Many of us wanted President Trump to use it to put down the BLM and Antifa riots in 2020. It was the cause of Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times that led to the New York Times editorial page immolating itself. Well, guess who signed the Insurrection Act into law? Thomas Jefferson. He did so after writing to his Secretary of State James Madison, asking if he could use military troops if the inherent powers to use military troops obtained if there ever were a planned insurrection. Madison said he could not, and thus came about the Insurrection Act, allowing for just that. Now, if I may go back to Professor Jaffa for a moment. If an individual's discontent with the law is shared with a majority or a large minority of his fellow citizens, they may join together to resist it, or to have the law repealed, or declared unconstitutional in the courts. The best example in our own time of how these processes are related to each other is provided by the civil rights movements that culminated in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1968. Here, civil disobedience, court action, political action, and finally legislative action all conspired to produce an outcome that, in all likelihood, would not have come to pass without all of them. These same elements in differing proportions have been present in all the great political movements and controversies in American history, including anti-slavery, temperance, women's suffrage, and abortion. Finally, there is a question of the terms of the revolution and what it would look like. It is often pointed out that few Americans fought in the American Revolution, and that's true, but they fought it against a foreign power. We have experiences with civil war as well, where it was American against American, and the question is, are we ready for that or even anything close to that? And an important question as well, who would lead it? 
who would be our George Washington? Do we live under a condition of absolute despotism as the Declaration of Independence intones? This, after all, is a country today whose U.S. Senate has 49 Republicans, where we maintain a majority in the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court, and national polling that puts a Republican candidate for president as likely or close to likely prevailing in the next election. In other words, I submit we don't come close to meeting the Jeffersonian moral conditions for the right of revolution. But even if you disagree, even if you think we have met those conditions, understand what it would look like. The moral conditions for a revolution, after all, do not create the moral certainty or the moral right or guarantee that you would win it. You would, after all, be fighting such things as the 101st Airborne, and I guess the whole affair would be over within less than 48 hours. One of the problems with violence against America is it will always be violence against fellow Americans, and it will not be successful, it will be bloody, and it will fail. It is also inconsonant with everyone we want to revivify and study, from Washington to Lincoln. As old Abe Lincoln put it, there is no grievance that is a fit object to redress by mob law. Oh, sure, Antifa thinks there is. BLM thinks there is. Nancy Pelosi, who asked about a riot, said people will do what people will do, thinks there may be. But that ain't us. We, as Lincoln put it, build pillars hewn from the solid quarry of sober reason. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. On the Hunter Biden investigation and revelations from whistleblowers, something interesting is shifting just a bit. The New York Times, for example, did have a story on an, IRA, uh, on an IRS agent telling Congress of Hunter Biden invoking his father in the business deal that we've been talking about. The New York Times did today in its newspaper. Yes, it was on page A15 after stories like state dinners, who gets them, who doesn't, after stories in earlier pages like uh, – a dramatic I-95 collapse in Philadelphia where state accelerates repairs after stories like report sites more than 350 anti-LGBTQ incidents over 11 months. By the way, LGBTQ for a moment, um, just, just a parenthetical on this. Um, you guys know what the B stands for in LGBTQ? It's bisexual. Now, how can <clears throat> excuse me, how can you have an LGBTQ movement where <clears throat> the B stands for bisexual, which means that sex is binary, when they are telling us sex is not binary? How can can someone square that circle for me? Someone so I, I this is this is an interesting serious question. They need to get rid of the B if they want to maintain philosophical or mental consistency, don't they? Bisexual means there's a bi- sex is binary, but the movement tells us there's no such thing, right? What? Well, I think that the hip kids on the block now say they're pan and poly. Well, they're going to have to replace the B with P. It's going to have to be LGBTQ. Which does not mean they're attracted to cookware. Uh, right. Thank you. Nicely put. 
Um, okay, on Hunter Biden. <laughs> Not attracted to cookware. Um, let me recap something before I get to what the media is doing. Well, the media – so the media, New York Times at least has a story on it. Karin Jean-Pierre got about four-minute rounds worth of question from all different media today. It, it raises the question, will the media stay on this, A, and B, why are they on this now? Is there an effort here, in other words, to start laying the groundwork for Biden not to run again? Is there is that taking place now with the media? Now, a lot of people people will read, a lot of conservative commentators will read a lot into the media when they do these things, and they'll say things like, well, if you've lost X, if you've lost the Washington Post. If, by the way, I don't think the Post has a story on this today. If you've lost the New York Times, if you've lost CNN, you know, when they do something critical of the Democrats. <clears throat> and I always raise the obsta principis point, just wait, just give it a day, it'll be gone. It'll, it's, it's a one-day shall we say, less than temporary excitation. In any event, Byron York uh, recaps what transpired yesterday with House Chairman, House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, where he held a a press conference to release transcripts of interviews with two IRS officials who have become whistleblowers about the Hunter Biden matter. And the short version is that the two officials, both very experienced, both with detailed firsthand knowledge of the Biden case, alleged that the Justice Department made a string of decisions that had the effect of benefiting Hunter Biden. Whistleblower number one, we know his name, it's Gary Shapley. He writes, I am alleging with evidence that DOJ provided preferential treatment, slow walking the investigation and did nothing to avoid obvious conflicts of interest in this investigation, close quote. There's a lot to discuss for the purposes here. Let's look at one piece of new evidence that was released. It was the WhatsApp message from July 30, 2017, that Shapley says the IRS discovered not on Hunter Biden's laptop, but during the execution of a warrant to search iCloud records. In it, Hunter Biden was speaking to a man named Henry Zhao, a Chinese businessman involved in Biden's shady dealings in China and also reportedly an official in the CCP. Hunter Biden wanted something from Zhao. It appears it was a payment, and he wanted it immediately. And Hunter writes, quote, I am sitting here with my father, and he would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand, and now means tonight. And Z, if I get a call or text from anyone involved in this other than you or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows— and my ability to forever hold the grudge, you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Close quote. Let me take a break, and we will come right back on this to make sure we have the important part of this story. I think a lot of people might be missing it. Be right back. With bank failures and stock market volatility and a possible recession coming with inflation, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? Well, what if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any 
time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio that is being offered by our friends at Y-Refi. And Y-Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. And you won't get asked to sign anything. You won't get a sales pitch. But when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34. Now, about this uh, whistleblower, Shapely, and the Hunter Biden story, let's go back a moment. Shapely said the IRS team discovered the message in August 2020. As Byron York puts it, even for people who questioned the authenticity of the Hunter Biden laptop, and we now know the FBI had verified its authenticity in December of 2019, this text message was worth investigating. In August 2020, we got the results back from the iCloud search warrant, Shapely said. Unlike the laptop, these came to the investigative team from a third-party record keeper and included a set of messages. The messages included material we clearly need to follow up on. No kidding. The July 2017 WhatsApp message was the clearest evidence ever that Joe Biden, then the former vice president, knew about his son's business dealings. Now, maybe Hunter Biden was lying in the message. Maybe his father wasn't in the room. Maybe there's some other explanation. What was clear was that the WhatsApp message was evidence that needed to be investigated. But Shapely and the other IRS investigators soon ran into a brick wall at the Justice Department. Now, if you go to Hunter Biden's attorney's statement today, Hunter Biden's attorneys put out and released a statement so that Carr and Jean-Pierre could keep referring to White House counsel or the Hunter Biden attorneys not answering any questions. You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, dodge from the White House press secretary. She says, I'm not going to answer any questions about the personal dealings of the president's son. It's not about exactly just the president's son when he's invoking his father. It's about the president and it's about whether the president lied when he routinely said he had no business dealings with his son, never even talked business with his son. Again, it wouldn't be that hard for the White House or someone in Team Biden to release a document that shows where the president was on this very day, of which we have a timestamp of that text. But this is really an interesting statement from Mr. Clark, Hunter Biden's attorney. Clark said in a statement today, quote, any verifiable words or actions of my client in the midst of a horrible addiction are solely his own and have no connection to anyone in his family, close quote. It's a really interesting thing to say, folks. Any verifiable words or actions of my client, verifiable, meaning maybe true. They're not dismissing it the way MSNBC would normally dismiss such a thing as Russian disinformation, or in this case, Chinese or someone else's disinformation. He's saying any verifiable words or actions of my client, Hunter Biden, 
in the midst of, and they may be true. He's admitting they may be true. The second part that's interesting is the use of Hunter Biden's addiction for exculpability, for innocence. In the midst of a horrible addiction are solely his own and have no connection to anyone in the family. Well, we don't know that yet. But the idea that he was in the midst of an addiction has nothing to do with whether Joe Biden was there or not. And it has nothing to do with whether he is culpable or not. Because you commit a crime or do something wrong while you are hopped up is not an excuse and does not reduce your culpability. Now, the main thing about this story, though, is, yeah, sure, it's about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. But more than anything, keep your eyes on the ball. I'll tell you what it's really about. It's really about the FBI and the DOJ. That's what it's about. That's the ball to keep your eye on. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. Russia, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, China, the list goes on and on. They are conducting international trade in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system and causing failures. The Biden administration sends hundreds of billions of dollars abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure here at home. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. Central bank digital currency is real. The patents have been filed and the big banks have released plans for implementation. The vets at Midas Gold Group see devastating implications. The end of cash, the end of financial privacy, big government able to see your every purchase. Could there be ties to social credit? Own private currency, gold and silver. Now get free silver just for asking Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. MidasGoldGroup.com. There's an interesting proposed rule from the Biden administration that hasn't made a lot of news having to do with tightening air quality standards. And it's something we need to know about. It sounds a little technical, but it was brought to my attention by a friend. And, uh, you know, there's so much that goes on through the regulatory schemes and the agencies that don't make the big headlines that we are unaware about all the time. The kind of stuff C.S. Lewis wrote about, you know, from those the evil that's committed by the quiet men and whose names we never know, whose people who, who we've never voted into office. Th- there is this interesting thing having to do with air quality that I wanted to bring your attention to, and we are uh, privileged to have with us an expert on this. He is Brandon Ferris. He's the vice president of energy and resources at uh, the National Association Manufacturers, NAM, great organization. Mr. Ferris, thank you for joining us, sir. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. You're absolutely right. This is technical, but it's important. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And I want you to tell us a little bit about it. Uh, First of all, I know NAM. I know the National Association. I love them. But for the audience that doesn't, say a word or two about what the National Association of Manufacturers does. I just love this organization. We represent the 13 million men and women that make things in America. There you go. So it's everywhere from the five-person manufacturing facility all the way up to some of the largest. Love it. All right. And you're on the side of the angels on, on, on almost everything you do, as far as I know. I should just say on everything you guys do, as far as I, I've been following you guys for a long time. All right. Tell the audience in Phoenix this technical thing, PM 2.5. What are we talking about here, sir? 
So PM 2.5 is particulate matter. It's fine microscopic particles in the air that when there's a whole lot of them, it can cause uh, breathing problems. It can cause... So so there have been regulations on the PM 2.5, the air quality standard, for decades. Mm -hmm. And and generally, every 10 years, EPA looks at this and says, do we need to update this? One of the things that we've found is since the 1970s, major pollutants have gone down 75, 80% in the U.S. So so this is working. So manufacturers are innovating and and we're doing it cleanly. Mm -hmm. And the new proposed regulation, so right now, again, this is technical, the standard is at 12. That's 12 micrograms. Okay in the air, mm-hmm. and EPA has put a proposal out that can go as low as eight, mm-hmm. and, and that's fairly dramatic. And the NAM, we commissioned a study with Oxford Economics, mm-hmm. and what we found is if EPA went down to eight, they're putting nearly $200 billion in economic activity at risk wow. and putting nearly a million jobs across the country at risk. Including in Arizona, and, right? And Arizona would take a pretty absolutely. big hit here, too, right? I know you're in Washington, but absolutely. this is an Arizona problem, too, right? Very much so. Very much so. So think of any place where there's industrial activity. Clearly, in Arizona, you're going to be making a heck of a lot of things. You're making batteries. You're making yep. semiconductors. You're making traditional manufacturing, all kinds of manufacturing. So whenever there's a decent-sized population... Whenever there's manufacturing or agriculture is when you're going to start seeing an issue with this. And the proposed rule, dropping it down to eight, puts 40% of the U.S. population in Mm non-attainment. And when your area is in non-attainment, you can't build anything. You can't build the bridges and roads that you need. You can't build manufacturing. You can't do agriculture. So there's a whole lot of things that this would stop. If I read that Oxford economic analysis correctly, it's something like Arizona would take a hit of something like 1,300 jobs. I mean, over 1,000 jobs here in Arizona. Not a small number. Not a small number at all. And that's that's immediate impact. Right. This can also affect supply chains. Yep. This can also affect – and a lot of the new Arizona manufacturing facilities aren't online yet. Right. And so – it could be even greater as those start coming online. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, absolutely right, Brandon. Now, let me ask you this. So what, 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 at what stage of the process is this? Is this something the EPA undertakes unto itself and proposes and puts the rule into the Code of Federal Regulations? Or is there some kind of congressional action that can stop it or involve itself here? So right now, we are in the final stages of EPA's process. We expect a final rule around October. There are always a few ways that Congress can do something. Uh, There's something, again, technical called the Congressional Review Act, Mm -hmm. where Congress can overturn an EPA regulation. We hope that it doesn't get to that point. What we're doing is, is we're talking to a lot of folks like you, and trying to have them weigh in with their congressional officials and weigh in with EPA saying, don't go down to eight. You can you can still protect human health and do it in a way that doesn't shut down the economy. And so what we're asking for is we're asking for a, a proposal that doesn't move all the way down to eight, 
You can move down to from 12 to 11. You can move from 12 to 10, still protecting the environment, still making sure that manufacturing is amongst the cleanest in the world, but not shutting down and putting 40% of our population into areas where you can't build anything. Brandon Ferris is our guest from National Association of Manufacturers. Just about a minute or so left, Brandon. Ultimately, this is the kind of thing I take it. This is the form of a question. If, if I get this wrong, feel free to fix it. Correct me. This is the kind of action that I'm assuming the administration in Washington, the Biden administration, the EPA, don't want us to know much about. They like to do things like this on the quiet through the regulatory scheme. The more we know about the better. And then when it happens, our only recourse tends to be litigation, expensive and delayed litigation, right? 100%. The more that we know, the better. And the more that they know we know, the better. <laughs> I love it. And so education is important here. And an outcry is important. Uh, hey, look, protect our health, protect the safety, but make sure you don't shut down these jobs. Great. And I presume, yes, I was going to offer the audience, if they want to learn more about this, they can go to the National Association of Manufacturers website, NAM. Brandon Ferris, thank you. I appreciate your time on this, especially at uh, late day on the, on, the, on the heading into the weekend. So thank you for doing this. And keep us up to date on this. Keep us posted, please. And anything we can do, let us know. Will do. Thank you so much for your time today. You bet. Brandon Ferris, F-A-R-R-I-S, from the National Association of Manufacturers. Um, Yeah, this is how they do it, folks. They want it quiet. They want it through the regulatory scheme. They don't want it to be done through an act of Congress. They don't want us to know about it. And we wake up one day, or businesses wake up one day, and bam, there it is, just as C.S. Lewis put it in the introduction to the screw tape letters, those quiet dens. What is this? Ain't I Right by Marty Robbins. Yeah. Was that just, like, done sua sponte by you? Oh, it was uh, the machine put it in here, but we put this in during Memorial Day. Yeah. Now we can take it out. (laughs) Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Blaming the machine. Nice try. Rob is in surprise. Hello, Rob. (laughs) Well, always blame the machine. Yes, right. Uh, Or the ghost in the machine if it's not the machine. Right. That's right. I, uh, first of all, happy Friday. Happy Second Friday. Great show so far. Thank you. Um, I, you know, we, we listen all the time, and you can talk to every talk show person, and they're always talking about, you know, the Biden crime syndicate or the corruption in Washington and all of that stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the old Tip uh, O'Neill phrase, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realize that Kelly Ward has not been the Republican uh, GOP chairman for at least six months now. Right. And that we have a new, uh, the Jeff DeWitt. Yeah, Jeff DeWitt is the chairman, right. Yeah. Now, I don't know anything about him. I don't know if anything has or would change as a result of him being in. Um, I I just, you know, can only hope that uh, we can win some more congressional and hopefully Senate seats. Uh, by whatever actions he and his new group uh, can do. Um, I, I guess I'm just bringing this up because uh, we, we don't, and there are those of us that don't read the Arizona Republic, so we don't really know what's going on much on a day-to-day basis other than <clears throat> some 
stupid thing that uh, a certain governor uh, vetoes or rejects that uh, the legislature has put forward. Uh, I know we have a you know Republican majority uh, legislature both on the legislative and Senate side, uh, more on the legislative side, I guess. But I I'm just wondering if, if you have any thoughts on whether you think there might be some improvement or some hope that uh, with the new change in leadership in the Arizona GOP that you know good things could maybe start to happen and we become a little less purple and a little more red. Well, I hope so. I, I, you know, I always hope we can improve. I think, you know, every year I want us to improve. I don't know, Jeff. Um, I got to know Kelly when she was a state senator and then when she became chair. So I know her a bunch better. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, most of this, Jeff, is, excuse me, most of this, Rob, is going to depend on the candidates who run. And I have always thought, and this hasn't been true in our party, state party, for a very long time, uh, not in any of the past chairmanships I can think of, I've always thought the party really needs to do a much better job of thus recruiting great candidates, because that's what really keeps us from being purple, whether it's at the state legislative level or at the federal election level. I, I, it's, I, I grow hoarse saying that. There's, there's this resistance to getting involved. But I think that's really what's most important. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.